Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. I thought I might begin our time together, and normally I would just sort of work our way through the text, which I will do, but I wanted to begin by reading it as a whole. We're looking at Psalm 95 this morning. It's a psalm, a beautiful psalm about worship, which gives you a bit of a clue as to what we're talking about this morning. It says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and with songs. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did that day at Manasseh in the wilderness. Where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my Rest. This is the word of the Lord, and with thanks be to God. So I've got a question for you as we begin our time together. How much do you worship in a week? How much time do you spend in worship during your week? Have you ever thought about it? I wonder. We're in a series at the moment called Refresh. And as we've kicked into this new year, we've been exploring the idea of what it means to refresh our minds of some of the core elements of our journey of faith. But it's a bit of a play on words as well, because not only are we refreshing our minds to these important ideas around the Christian faith, not all the ideas we could explore, but just some. Because as we've worked through it, it's not just a refreshing of our mind, but each of these things that we're looking at is a refreshing of the soul. There's something about them as practices, as things that we do, that refresh us, that give us something rich and wonderful that we can't find anywhere else in the world. 
And so this series, Refresh, we've looked at, in week one, I looked at our vision. The vision that God has given us as a church, the why we exist to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Lives here in Gawler, lives wherever you're joining us online, our heart is to see you transformed as well. But it's not just about everyone else, it's about us too, that transformation needs to happen within each of us. And God, if we're not dead, God's not done with us in our growth and in the things God wants to do through us. In the second week, I talked about baptism, as I mentioned earlier. The baptism is this public declaration of faith, a wonderful thing, a wonderful, rich and extraordinary thing that we do. It's something that Jesus asked us to do as His followers. And then last week, Angus looked at life groups, the vital part of community that we're never called to do faith alone, but instead we're called to a faith that is entrenched in community. And he gave us a stack of reasons why that's the case, and I'm going to talk about a couple more as we look at this idea that I want to look at today. Now, there's heaps in all of those messages, so if you missed them, if you want to watch them again, you can find them online. We've got the podcast, so you can listen on your smart device while you're mowing the lawns, whatever you want to do. The option is to explore them again. But today, I want to talk about worship. And it's a word in our culture that's perhaps most associated with religion. Worship is something that We don't really talk about too much outside of the context of religion, really. It's a a genre of music. Anyone got a worship album at home? Or you listen to a worship music, you got worship playlists on Spotify that only include songs about Jesus and and God. And and so this word worship has been associated most strongly in our culture today around the genre of music the approach that we might have to God. This service that we have on a Sunday morning is called a Sunday worship gathering. It's in the Word. And so there's something about it that this idea of worship is a central part of our faith as followers of Jesus. But I wonder, I wonder how many of us know why. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever noticed it? Have you ever wondered Why? Why is it that worship is so central to us? What's the point? How does it make a difference? For me, my journey of faith, I've been a Christian, I grew up in a Christian household, I went to church basically my whole life, and and so for me, my journey of faith has been more of a progression than than a moment of transformation. And so worship has always been a part of my experience in some form, worshipping, but worship was always Sunday mornings at church. We'd always sing, we had gifted musicians in the church that I grew up in, and so worship was always an inspiring and emotion-filled experience of a full band and lots of sound, and we went to Hillsong conferences over in Sydney every year, if you've never heard of that, or built, it's, it's a significant, like a worship and, and leadership conference over in Sydney that happens in, around July every year. So we had a, a team from our church that went every year, and so I went for about six years in a row as a as sort of a, a young teenager. And so all that, that idea of deep, immersive worship has formed me deeply. And my first leadership role in a church was leading worship. 
I think I was about 16 when I, when I got given the keys to the microphone, if you get what I mean. Entrusted with leading worship. I don't know if I did a good job or a terrible job, but I was encouraged all the same. Hopefully, I've learned a few things in that time. But the one thing I never really looked too closely at was beyond the acceptance of this idea that just worship was this thing you did on Sundays in church or you sang music to in the car on your way to work or whatever. But the thing about worship for all of us is you've all got experiences, one way or the other. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have an experience, you have an expectation or an understanding around this idea of worship, don't you? When you come to a Sunday service, if you're visiting for the first time, you have some perspective as to what you might find here. If you're joining us online, you might have had some experience of what it is that worship looks like or feels like or something. You might even have expectations of the types of songs we might sing or who might play them, what, what instruments. All of that is our expectations and our formation around worship. But as I said, I would argue that I think for most of us, we've never given this idea of worship much thought. Not really, not looked at it closely. And I've got to be honest with you, it was this church that made me take a close look at worship. If I'm honest with you, let's be real, it was this church stepping into leadership in a church as the, the lead pastor for the first time, thinking about what it is, what sort of worshipping culture we might have, the different perspectives that people had around what worship would look like, inspired me, encouraged me, and probably even required me to take a closer look at this and figure it out. And so, with the rest of the time we've got, I wanted to just answer a couple of simple questions for us. Not a dissimilar way to what I did with baptism a couple of weeks ago. I want to answer these questions for us as the best way I can. What is worship? You might already have an answer for that, but I'm going to tell you what I think. Why do we worship as Christians? You may have never even thought about it. It's just something that you do. How do we worship as Christians? Does it matter? Is there a right or wrong way? But then lastly, I want to look at how do we get better at it? Because if we're not done growing then there's got to be things God's got left to teach us, richness that we have yet left to explore about everything to do with the Christian experience. So how do we get better at worship? But like most of the topics that I've looked at so far, we can't talk about everything. So this is not an extensive thing. We'll probably do a series on this later on. So I'm not going to talk about style of worship, as far as this is concerned, I don't give a rip what sort of songs you listen to, whether they're done on an organ or whether they were written 150 years ago, whether they were written last week, whether you think they're relevant, whether they're not. Not talking about it. Sorry. We're not even going to talk about worship as a lifestyle. Some, some people go, oh, well, worship is, you know, you do it in your whole life and it's whatever you do, you worship for God and that's true. But not talk, looking at that either. My hope for today is that as you go from here, that you will understand a little bit more of what worship is, but also perhaps what might be missing for you in the idea of worshiping God. And perhaps 
if, we, if we're honest, if we want to have a closer look in our heart, perhaps why your experiences of worship are leaving you empty, dry, dissatisfied, whatever. That if you walk out of a place like this, having come and taken the time, and if you go going, leaving this place going, eh, maybe we might find something for you. That maybe it's got nothing to do with this and everything to do with you. Sound good? Do we want to go there today? All right, let's do it. So I've opened our time together with a, a psalm, Psalm 95. And it's a psalm that has been used throughout the entirety of the Christian church to help us understand and define what worship is. And so I want to spend the rest of our time looking at it and what it can teach us to help us understand the nature of worship in a Christian context. And so let's start with the question, what is worship? I'm glad you asked. Worship, first and foremost, we understand. Worship, if I were to define it, is ascribing ultimate value, ultimate worth, in such a way as that it engages our whole being. That's what worship is, quite simply. Let me say it again. What is worship? Worship is ascribing value, ultimate value, the highest value, to something in such a way that it engages our entire being. And by our entire being, I mean our mind, our will, and our emotions. As as the psalmist begins Listen to the language of this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving. Let's extol Him with music and song. Let us sing and shout. This, this, this 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 is emotive language. So the psalmist begins in trying to explain what this whole idea of worship is about. It begins with our emotions, emotive language. But then it doesn't stay with just our emotions as if having a euphoric experience is all that worship is. It continues and says in verse 6, Come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. There's something about worship that's not just about emotions. There's something about decision and and submission. There's a a choice that we make here to, to put God higher than ourselves. So it's not just about our emotion, it's also about our will. There's something about worship which is about our will, our choices, But then there's something else here. In verse 8, it talks about, Do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, it says, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me. And though they had seen what I did, for 40 years I was angry with them. There are people whose hearts have gone astray that they have not known my ways. There's something in there about hearing, 
about listening to the heart of God, about accepting the truth about God. And so this is not just, worship is not just worshiping with emotions. It's not just worshiping because we decide to. It's worshiping because we see something, we understand something of God, and it drives us to worship God. So worship is ascribing ultimate value to, to something. In this case, to Christian worship, to God. In, a, in, in such a way that it captures our emotions, that it captures our decisions, and it captures our thinking. And so I would go so far as to say, and the Scriptures sort of suggest that if we were to attend some sort of religious experience like this one, like Sunday church, if any of these three elements of worship are, are missing, it's not, it's not really worship. It's not really worship because we, we've missed something. And I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that where you rock up at church and you leave from church and it's just sort of... Yeah. The psalmist would suggest that this expression of worship that we're called into, invited into, needs these things of emotion, of will, and of mind to be a life-giving thing. But we need to, answer, we need to ask the question, what does it mean to assign ultimate value to something? What does it mean to assign ultimate value? Well, to value something, you need to see the things about it. You need to understand its attributes, don't you? In the Scripture, it talks in verse 3. Man, this fan is going to drive me crazy. How many times have I moved this? That's all right. I need the fan because I'm cooking up here either way, so I'll, I'll deal with it. What, does it. what does it mean to assign ultimate value? Well, being able to assign value means we need to observe the, the, the values about that thing. And in verse 3, it, we read that, for, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all the gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. And we also read in verse 7, for He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We get a picture of a shepherd sort of thing. So in both of these, we see the, mag the magnitude of God. And we see a picture of God's provision and God's character. And so what, is, what, what does it require to assign ultimate value? It means to take stock of the attributes of the thing that we want to assign worth to. How do I illustrate it? Anyone seen the Antique Roadshow on the ABC? Is it on ABC most of the time? It's, I've, I, look, I haven't looked, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't watched it lately, but definitely have watched it at some point. But I, you see that moment when one of the, the, one of the people, I wanted to call them a contestant, but they're not, one of the, the visitors onto the show brings this trinket or this thing that they've sort of, the story's almost always the same, got given it by my grandma, great-grandma, great-great-great-grandma's sister's friends, goldfish, whatever, gave it to me. And we sort of lost it, and then we got it back, and then we found it in a drawer. And then, and then we, and so I brought it here. I don't know what it's worth. Please help me. And then the, the, um, the, the specialist in that area 
um, analyzes it and, and they look at it and they, they look at its, its design. They look at the different things about it. They might see a, an inscription on it somewhere or the, the filigree of the gold laid into a handle or, or the style of its craftsmanship. And then you see this moment happen on the show. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes. You see this moment where the, the analyst or the, the specialist the, looks at it, and there's this sense of, of wonder that comes about them, where they've looked at the facets of this antique, and they realize something. That after looking at it, they realize that it's this ancient jewelry box from the from ancient Egypt or something, I don't know, this ancient jewelry box of extraordinary value that, that it's, they don't even know how to make this stuff anymore, that it's never been seen before. Or it's, and, and the analyst or the specialist is captured by the beauty of it, by its attributes, by its rarity, and, and, and their heart begins to race as, as they realize, that they start thinking about that this thing's worth perhaps more than everything that they, you have seen in this entire sort of show. This thing right in front of them is more valuable than all of them put together, perhaps more valuable than anything that this, this antiques person has ever seen before. And then suddenly the person that brought it starts to realize the same truth. And their heart starts to race as they think, this thing that has been sitting in my grandma's drawer for for 150 years or whatever, we lost it last year. I can't believe that this thing is worth more than anything I will ever see in my life. The heart starts to race. They start to understand the truth of it. And something changes about them. Friends, I believe that's what assigning, that's, that's what worship is. It's the best thing I can think of. That when we take the moment to, to, to look and analyze and understand the value of something, and we start to discover what it's truly worth, something captures in us. Our emotions start to shift. There's a, a thrill about it, an enjoyment, an excitement. But there's also a, an understanding that, heck, I, I've been living, this thing's been in my, in my care for so long, I haven't cared for it the way that I ought to. My life needs to change now. I need to start treating these things differently, stop chucking it in the shed, but instead it needs to be on the mantelpiece. And now I understand what it's worth. Maybe I need to insure it or do something. Emotions. Will mind. Friends, if our encounter with God, this idea of assigning ultimate value to Jesus, to God, emotions, mind, will, when we understand the value of God, we can start giving Him the worship that He is due to assign God the ultimate value. And this word worship is not actually not native to our language. It's, it's, it's a combination of two words. It's worship means worth-ship. Not hard to pick that one up. Worth-ship. It's the act of seeing what God is worth and giving God that worth. 
to grasp it in such a way as that we begin to live in accordance with it. Does that make sense? The challenge for us is that most people in our culture, we all believe in some sort of God. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, doesn't matter. We all have some sort of construct around God, some sort of spiritual understanding. Even as an atheist, we have some understanding, some perspective of God, so much so that we don't believe it, God, that God is worth believing in. That's what, you know, as an atheist, you don't believe in a God because you've analyzed it, you've looked at it, and you've understood it. It's not worth it. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me, whatever that looks like. But we all have a God that we analyze and we look at and we, we've made an assessment for ourselves as to whether that God is worth worshiping. And here's a staggering reality about that. We all have this construct of God and this understanding of God. And the difference between an everyday life, a mediocre sort of struggling with the ebbs and flows of life, you're not quite sure how everything's going to work out. It's the difference between that everyday ups and downs sort of life and a transformed life shot through with thanksgiving and joy and peace and hope is not belief in God. That doesn't make the difference. Worship of God actually makes the difference. Because worship, that ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing God's worth, and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms our whole life, that's worship, and nothing less. Nothing less. So if that's worship, then, then why should we worship? And the short answer to that is, you've got to worship something. We've all got to worship something. We're already worshiping something. Our life Believe it or not, you might totally disagree with this, this might come across as super offensive, we are already worshipping something in our life. Our life is already oriented towards something, centred around something that we've chosen to ascribe ultimate value to. And this is true whether you're religious or whether you're not. We often think that we are, the world is divided into those that are religious and those Oh, sorry, the world is divided into those that worship and those that don't. But everyone worships something. The world is actually instead divided into two things. Those that worship things that distort our life, and those of us that worship the only thing worth, worthy of it, worthy of worship in our life. They're the two categories. Those that worship things that distort our life, and those that worship the only thing worthy of that sort of devotion in our life. It, as we, we can, the psalm highlights it, in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. On verse 3 it says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Somehow this God that we're talking about is bigger than all the other gods, but the implication is that there are other gods. Now, we, we in our culture, we don't necessarily, in our enlightened way of thinking, we don't believe in gods of the sand and gods of the sun and gods of the, of the water and gods of the, we don't, the harvest. We don't believe in those sorts of gods anymore like they did in the ancient times. But I wonder, do you believe in the God of self-provision? Do you believe in the God of your shoe collection? 
What about the God of Instagram? The God of your to-do list? The God of your family? The God of your, of your spouse? The God of your income? The God of your bank account? The God of your physique? Who laughed? <laughs> Got something to say? No. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> That's great. We're all worshiping something. But it's not the gods of the harvest anymore. It's the gods of our 21st century busyness and our chaos. If you were to say, I'm not religious, Josh, and I don't really worship anything. I'd push back and say I respectfully disagree. Has anyone seen that movie Harry Potter, the first one? Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In the movie, they discover an artifact. In, it's a book about magicians, and it's a movie, and a kid's book. And They discover a, a mirror in one of the attics somewhere, I think. And it's called the Mirror of Erised. What does Erised spell backwards? Desire. And the phenomenon around this mirror was that it showed you what you deepest desired. And Harry, Harry, the central character of the book, finds this. And he sees it. And he sees in, the, in, in there his, his family. He sees his parents and discovers, ultimately, that this was the desire of his heart. Because he shows his friend the mirror and says, look, you can see my parents. And his friend says, no, no, I see myself as a champion Quidditch player. I'm prefect of the school. And they, they couldn't figure it out. And they realized this book of said is projecting back to them their deepest and greatest desires. And, and Harry Potter's mentor, Dumbledore, comes and talks with him about it. And he says, we actually we need to take this mirror away. We need to hide it. Why? Because he says, people have wasted their lives, wasted away staring into this mirror, literally worshipping the thing that they most deeply desired. Friends, everyone worships something. But the challenge for us is, are we wasting away our life staring at the things that we've created, the things that we might strive for? Or are we spending our life worshipping the only true thing that is worth our worship? So why, why do we worship? We worship because we're worshipping something anyway. It's just a matter of deciding, are we going to worship the thing that ultimately nourishes us and gives us what we need in this life, what we're striving for? Or do we worship the things that will ultimately let us down? Uh, by the way, um, God is the only thing we can worship that will actually forgive us. You may never have thought about this. But when you worship God, and we fall short of God's standard in all sorts of ways, Scripture says we all fall short of God's glory and standard. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice to forgive us of our sins through faith. So when we worship God and we fall short of God's standard, God forgives us. We confess our sins and are forgiven of all unrighteousness. But I wonder what happens when the greatest desire of your heart is to weigh 20 pounds less than you do right now. Let's say it's 75 kilograms. You want to weigh that much. You jump on the scales 
and you realize that you're, you're 85 today. And then you, you diet and you diet and you diet and you nutrition and you exercise, and next week you get to 84.9. Because let's be honest, that's a reality sometimes. And you try and you try and you try for, the, for years and you cannot make that thing move. And so you orient your life around it. You research it. You, you spend more time looking at that than anything else. You spend more time preparing food than you do anything else in your life. You orient everything. Friends, you're worshipping that thing. And when you fail and the scales look the same, there's no, those scales don't forgive you. You just stand there feeling like a failure with nothing left but your failure. Why? Because you're worshipping something that will ultimately leave you empty. And by the way, once you get to 75 kilos, you still won't be happy. And you'll want to get to 65 because that's how that stuff works. When we worship anything else in our life other than God, it eats us alive as an endless pit of desire. So why do we worship? We worship because we're worshiping something anyway. So if worship is assigning ultimate value to something, and if we worship because we plan to work, we will worship something anyway, then I've got to, just with a couple of minutes if I can, tell us how it is that we can worship better. Let's get to a practical bit. Is that, would that be helpful for you? We know what worship is. We know why we worship it. So how do we do it? And the text sh- shares with us four things. Quite simply, it says worship needs to be done in community. True, proper Worship needs community. It doesn't mean you cannot sing worship songs in the car on the way to work or on the way to to wherever. But notice the language. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before Him and extol Him with music. The Lord is our great God. He is our God. Let us bow down. Do you get the theme? There's everything that's talked about. It's all in plural. Every community is a rich part of, of worship. And the thing that, that we're offered in community is community offers us perspective. When we're sitting down, we've got one worldview. That's it. You might like to think you've got more than one. You've got one worldview. But your worldview is different to the person sitting next to you, even if you're married to them. They see things a little differently. And so the gift of community is that we get to experience not just our worldview with God, but we get to experience and be enriched by someone else's worldview of God, their expression of worship and of understanding of God. And so when we gather in community, we find a richer expression of it. C.S. Lewis, naturally, no, I'll leave that alone. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about the way this is helpful, and if you want to know about it, I'll share it with you after. So the first thing is we need to have worship in community. The second thing is we need to have worship grounded in truth. The psalmist says this, The Lord is the great God. Not, I think the Lord is the great God. What what does the psalmist declare? The Lord is the great God. 
His hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to Him. How does the psalmist know? How does the psalmist know all of this stuff about about God? The psalmist has read the Scriptures, the ancient Scriptures that teach and the prophets that teach about the nature of God. The psalmist has read about them and understands them. It's submitted to a truth about the world. So, friends, for us to, to have a meaningful experience of worship, we need truth. We need to submit ourselves to something by, about which we can agree, something to come under authority of, to, to be able to proclaim and declare the truths about God. And we believe that's the Scriptures. And the challenge of our world is that most people, most of us are guilty of this too, haven't read this. Not all of it, and if we have read it, we don't necessarily understand that much about it. And so, if, this, if, if we haven't submitted our life to the truth found in here, then what we've done instead is created a God of the bits and pieces about Scripture that we like. And so, we don't have a shared understanding of God, which means we can't share, worship God in a shared sort of way. So, friends, when it comes to worship, we need to, we need to submit ourselves to the teachings of the Scriptures as the ultimate revelation and truth about God. Thirdly, we need to invite the Spirit. The Spirit needs to be a part of our worship. The purpose of worship ultimately is to come into and gain a glimpse of God's presence and God's true worth, God's true value. But then you say, Josh, isn't the Spirit of God everywhere? Well, yes. Isn't God everywhere? Yes, absolutely. But the Spirit is the one in our life that has the capacity to lift our awareness to a place where we glimpse God's glory. The Spirit is the one that fosters the connection. And so this is beyond cognitive. And so the challenge for us, I'm a systems person, is that when we structure everything, when we know when we come to worship and we know that, okay, this is the first two songs, all right? So, I, yep, okay, we'll stand because the song has started. And then we stand do we, do we sit for the first prayer? Yes? No, okay, we are sitting today. Okay, I'll sit. And we'll stand up for the second song. Oh, then we sit for another prayer. Okay. And then we stand, I'll stand up for the third song. And then we have a prayer of confession or a prayer for others. Then we send the kids out. And then Josh preaches for too long. And then the worship band stands up again. And we sing another song. And then we go and have coffee. Has anyone noticed that's the rhythm of our worship services? You might be comfortable with that, and that's cool. But unless we invite the Spirit to lead us through our worship services in some way, I feel like we're missing something. It doesn't mean we're going to have free worship. It doesn't necessarily mean we're just going to sing the same chorus from a Hillsong song for 46 minutes straight. We're not going to do that. Because I don't think that's helpful, necessarily, for the, everybody. But instead... Inviting the Spirit to speak, to reveal, to meet us and help us understand the nature of God. That we might worship and give Him ultimate value with our will, our emotions and our mind. That's part of worship. And if we're not doing that, then perhaps we're missing something. But lastly is for us to worship in a meaningful way, we need to worship 
by understanding gospel Sabbath rest. And what do I mean? The second half of this psalm, and I'm not going to read it all again, the second half of this psalm changes tack completely. The first half is all about God's glory and God's wonder and what we're going to do in response to it and how good God is, etc. And the second half is about God's brutal judgment of the Israelite people for 40 years. And there is one sentence that connects the two, and it says this, Today, if only you would hear His voice. Today, if only you would hear His voice. And the question is, why does the psalmist finish this psalm about worship with judgment? And it's not until we, under, we look forward and we understand it, what the rest is that they're talking about, because it finishes by saying, they shall never enter my rest, talking about the Israelites. It's only when we look at the understanding of what rest was actually to be offered that we understand how worship can be most transformative for us. Because the rest offered to the Israelites was one in the promised land. But we're not Israelites. So what's the rest offered to us? Well, it's the rest that we find in the gospel. It's a rest that's grounded in that we don't have to work for our salvation anymore. We are given it by grace through faith. So we don't have to come to church. We don't even have to attend church to be good with God. That's found by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Which means, why does this matter? Because if we don't come to, if we don't approach worship from a place of understanding the gospel rest offered through Jesus Christ, this becomes another thing to do. And I don't know if I have time. We've got so much on. Maybe I'll stop worship today because it's too hard. It's too hot in here. Whatever it is, when that's our attitude, we haven't understood the gospel rest offered by Christ. This is just another thing on our Christian to-do list. And so, friends, if we don't, if we, so how do we get, how do we get this worship thing right? We do it in community. We ground it in truth. We invite the Spirit to be involved. But then we understand the Sabbath rest that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. Friends, that is worship. That is what it means And if it's anything less than that for us, we're missing something. And so my challenge for you is, whether you're religious or irreligious, we're all worshipping something. So why don't we worship the right thing? But in worshipping the right thing, let's spend the time to invite the Spirit, to submit to God's truth, and to find an enriching experience, much like discovering that artifact that's been sitting in your top drawer for a hundred (laughs) years that's worth more than anything you could ever have owned. Much like discovering that, may our approach to worship be an approach to discovering a fresh and more wonderful wonder about God that leaves us breathless, that makes us want to do nothing but serve Him on our knees, that makes us understand more of God's will for us in the world. So that's worship. That's why we should do it. And hopefully, giving you something to help you understand how to do it better. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, I thank you. I thank you for your gift of worship, that we can 
come before you and give you the worth that you are due. But Lord, if we're honest, we, we so often, our, our lives are driven by our own sense of worship, the things that we want to prioritize, the things that we want to center our lives on. And, and Lord, you want more for us than that. Because we know, if we're honest, that anything else that we could worship will leave us empty, dry, unfulfilled, and frankly broken. But you promise more than that. So Lord, help us to worship you with spirit and in truth and to understand the gospel gift that is given to us. Help us to truly have our emotions, our actions, and our thinking transformed as we understand who you are, your magnitude, and everything that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. So thank you for the gift of worship. And may we never stop growing and desiring the thrill of encountering your glory each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen.